Welcome to For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest today is Nathaniel Harley, CEO at Mantle. Mantle is an omni-channel account opening platform that integrates with banking cores. What does that mean? We'll dig into it in the episode. Specifically, Nathaniel and the Mantle team are running after a gigantic opportunity to serve community banks, regional banks, credit unions, and all those institutions without the multi-billion dollar R&D budgets that act as the backbone of this here American economy. Not to mention, they're growing like wildfire. They're coming off a $40 million fundraise from the likes of Capital G, which, by the way, Nathaniel, in my opinion, is also a Capital G, Point72, Clock Tower, and many, many, many other Tier 1 VCs. It's really cool to see this kind of investor getting involved in a company that's serving community banks and serving this world that I think of as very ignored in a lot of cases. This episode of For Fintech's Sake is brought to you by VSUM. VSUM is a no-cost virtual conference exploring the value stack of the internet through live technology briefings and moderated small group discussions. Each virtual conference is limited to 100 people and the spots go fast. Learn more and apply to join at v-sum.com. And now, the great and powerful Nathaniel Harley. All right, Nathaniel, welcome to For Fintech's Sake, my friend. How are you doing today? And where are you calling from? I'm doing good. I'm actually calling from Edgewater, New Jersey, on the skirts of New York City, where I normally hail from pre-COVID times. But yeah, just just hanging out and enjoying the nice weather today. I love it. So when when COVID hit, did you like escape back that direction? Where where were you before that? Yeah, so we were we were living in the city on the Upper West, and my wife's parents actually are from New Jersey. So we decided to, you know, hibernate for a few months at, at their place, and just love the the outdoor space. I'm from the city originally, so I've grown up, born, and raised. Basically, lived there for my whole life outside of going to college in, in Chicago for four years. So it was a little weird for me, to be honest, to, yeah. to not be in the city. But then I was like, oh wow, like trees and fresh air and this seems pretty nice. So we've been camping out here for, you know, basically, basically since March and got our own apartment. And, and now I actually think we're going to head back to the city. We, we just had our first kid about five weeks ago. So life is, is definitely changing. Well, I was going to say, congrats, man. The, yeah. The reason you and I wanted to do this, I think a while back and then bringing human life into the world takes precedence over certain things like FinTech podcast. So congratulations, my friend. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's been, it's been a, a fun ride and, and definitely interesting challenges, especially while we're getting back to work. So yeah. Loving every second of it. Are you getting some sleep? Are you, uh, are you balancing it or is it, you know, just starting a startup and then starting a human startup at the same time insanity? Yeah, definitely getting some sleep. If I ramble and make no sense, it's because I have a little bit of lack of sleep, <laughs> but things are, uh, getting better every day. So I love it, man. Definitely feeling good. Good stuff. Well, the the New Jersey thing's funny to me. Like the number of like I'm pretty convinced that everyone's parents live in New Jersey, just based on my experience. Like everybody's in New Jersey for some reason, and it's usually their parents. And like the number of hyper successful people that I've talked to that are just like sitting in their their childhood bedroom at their parents' house in New Jersey since COVID's hit is just hilarious to me. Like the the flocking back there. I loved it. 
but my wife was like, I can't live with my parents for too long. So we had to, we had to bolt out of there after, <laughs> after a, a certain months. But yeah, I, I think that that certainly is a trend that I'm hearing as well. Well, talk to me about your life growing up. I mean, kind of getting into Nathaniel specifically, like where you said you grew up in the city. Were there any like entrepreneurial tendencies? Were you selling candy on the subway or something else that sounds incredibly dangerous at a young age? It's funny you say that. I think my first entrepreneurial venture was I went to this grocery store on the Upper West Side called West Side Market. And I bought a bunch of candy, a bunch of Gatorade, a bunch of oranges and cut them into slices. And my, my mom had like one of those shopping carts that was just sort of laying around the house. And we took that and brought it to the soccer fields on about 100, 101st Street. And we started pawning them off to all of the, the soccer moms who had forgotten snacks. We sold out like within the first 10 minutes because we I think we just got lucky. Like I, I, the moms at that actual game forgot to bring snacks. So they were like, oh my God, thank you so much. But that was that was kind of my first memory of, of you know venturing in, into the entrepreneurial world. I've always done various different things, right? Like was in a band in high school. Me and my co-founder actually today at Mantle, we created our own sort of like feature film as our senior project in high school where, you know, we had real actors and, and sort of did the whole thing, created like our own classes at, at college. I started this or, or really expanded this thing called Uni Eats, which was like a, a discount card in, in college that one of my friends from Penn had started. Um, so we brought there, got some of the the Northwestern restaurants to give us discounts and, and just started selling the cards across campus. So I'd always had the entrepreneurial spirit and had always wanted to do something along those lines. Never really knew exactly what I wanted to do within it, but always knew I wanted to, to start my own business. That then took me into the finance route. And I actually studied math and econ at Northwestern in addition to film. And I was debating, okay, do I go the mailroom in LA route and and sort of work my way up and write screenplays and and do editing? Or do I go sell my soul and and be an investment banker or consultant? I chose the latter uh, because, you know, definitely, definitely clear path to making money at the time. I quickly realized after spending two years at Goldman that it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, You know, a lot of a lot of bureaucracy there, not, not a lot of freedom. I really enjoyed the work that I was doing at the end of the day. It was kind of my first touch actually on the like regional banks at the time who were issuing equity to pay down TARP. And I worked on the Guildley IPO, right? Who was sort of plaid before plaid was plaid. Um, so it was kind of my first touch in, into finance. And then I left and, and I started my first company, which was in the media space called Spoon University, basically food network for the next generation. I uh, did that with two friends from college, uh, you know, scaled that business, went through tech stars, raised our seed round, and then ultimately just wanted to get back into finance. And that's when I linked up with one of my best friends, Ben, who's our CTO, and we started Mantle. And, and that's kind of how the, the journey began. Do you ever have dreams of going back and getting back into film or something later in life and kind of recircling back on some of those passions? Because it sounds like you've had... It sounds like you've had a lot of like forks in the road and you've chose like the responsible road consistently. Do you ever want to go back and like, it's hilarious to call entrepreneurship responsible because it's not, but have you ever thought about going back and being more irresponsible or later in life? Definitely. I I never was big on like directing, but always loved screenwriting, always loved editing. I could see myself going into like producing now that I have sort of the the business background. It's, you know, it's probably 
way easier from a route of like, all right, kind of know what you're doing. You've established some connections versus like working yourself up in the mailroom. Definitely wouldn't want to go do that in LA. Probably too much, uh, you know, pain and involved in that, but have a lot of friends in, in the movie industry. So it's something that I've kept, you know, in, in the back of my mind, big, big film guy, big TV guy now. But, you know, I, I think it's probably a ways of ways and I'd probably weave it into some startup that, you know, we create down the line if I ever decided to go back into it. Well, keep me in the loop, my friend. I have I have uh, similar, similar but different dreams. Like I really have always wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. I think that's part of why I like do this is like it's a very low touch, doesn't require too much talent version of documentary filmmaking. So it's yeah. I'm with you, dude. It's very tempting to go like the quasi starving artist route. And also like, is LA even LA anymore? Great question. A lot, a lot of people are coming to New York. A lot of people are going to Austin. So yeah, I think the times there are changing. Yeah, indeed. dude. It's going to be wild to see what happens with a lot of different things. The comedy store, the future yeah. of, you know, uh, different actors screaming at people on set if they don't have masks on. But anyways, anyways, it's a fascinating side of the world. So Quickly, I'm, I'm just curious, this, like this pivot from Goldman analyst, right, to starting a company in the food space. Yeah. Like how, how, how did you get from one to the other and kind of go down that road? Yeah. So I, I remember sitting down with a few of my best friends at, at the time and, and we went out to dinner and I was breaking the news to them that I was leaving Goldman and, and going to join this startup, basically earning no money, working out of our apartment. And they were like, you're crazy. What, what are you doing? How, how could you possibly do this? You're insane. You're going into food. Well, I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, like what really drove me was autonomy and being able to solve really hard problems that didn't necessarily have a very clear playbook outlined. Hmm. And, you know, being able to just like work on things and work with people and, and really be in a collaborative environment. And as I sort of said, like my heart has always been in starting something, right? I've always kind of done it throughout my life. So, you know, I, I sort of looked at the path of being an investment banker and realized, yeah, you get paid a lot of money, uh, you do it for a really long time, but you also kind of become beholden to that in many ways. And that's not really the life that I wanted to live. I, I was much more down with, I guess, taking some pain and, and feeling like, you know, we were grinding it out with hopefully some, you know, upside at, at the end of the day. It, I feel like you're one of the few people in the world that's ever made money in the food industry. You know, like just the, <laughs> the fact that you had an exit to Food Network is like watching all of these restaurants shut down and whatnot. It just seems like seems like you picked the right angle inside of the restaurant and food industry. Yeah, look, I, I think timing is everything at the end of the day. And, yeah. you know, just funny story, like one of the big things that we did was take we, we kind of created a new form of film or uh, food videos, right? So you see those tasty BuzzFeed videos that exist today. Yeah. We actually pioneered that format. We had this amazing video editor who was working for us out of college. And then they ended up poaching him and copying the format. It was honestly beneficial for us because they obviously had millions and millions and millions of views. So it kind of helped us take off. But I think we got out of the media game at the right time. So feeling pretty lucky about that. Yeah. And I mean, when you moved into the world of fintech was like right when, right before almost, it seems like the world decided that was a good idea. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, it was a few interesting things were, you know, where it sort of came from was like, I was trying to figure out my own finances, right? I was 
coming off home, I was coming off this startup and I was like, how do I get my own finances in order? You know, how do I roll over my 401k? It was kind of like the early innings of like robo-advisors and neobanks and kind of the unbundled of financial services. You know, when we started to dig into all of these like really one product companies, we started to understand that like one, everything is super fragmented. Now. They're providing better solutions for those products, but people have their money in all different places. But the other problem we identified was that these services weren't necessarily helping people with financial literacy. And financial literacy was really low, right? We started talking to our friends. They didn't know, you know, should I be saving? Should I be paying down my student loan? How much should I spend on rent? All of these different questions. And, you know, that really motivated us from the beginning to kind of say, all right, well, maybe there's an opportunity to actually build a better bank that helps people at the beginning of the day. Now, Building a bank obviously takes a ton of money. Like you look at Vero and you know, look how much that that costs them. Or you can yeah. go partner with some underlying bank, which you know you need to raise some seed capital. So we saw the first iteration as a personal finance app that essentially created recommendations. Was you know basically a mint competitor. Went through that journey. Went through TechStars. Launched the beta. Raised our seed round, and then finally started talking to all of these different banks about connecting to them, what essentially white labeling their bank accounts, right? You you know exactly how, how that goes and, and mm-hmm. offering this sort of, you know, at the time we were called my thin, my thin checking accounts. That's when we really started to understand the problem that Nanto goes after today. And really the industry, right? The fact that there are 10,000 banks in the US and, and credit unions, 96% of them outsource their technology to third-party vendors. But those vendors, they're really old. They're really antiquated. The system they built, they're built in the 50s, 60s, 70s. They're on mainframe servers or written in cobalt. And as a result, the, the community banks who honestly play a really important role in the communities that they serve, society, our economy, right? If you look at all the, the regs from the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, like everything promotes community banking. Yep. They've really struggled, right? And, and they've really had a hard time to compete with the chases of the world, but also the neobanks because the infrastructure that they were tied to was just not allowing them to innovate, right? And, and they weren't able to move fast enough. So that's what got us really excited about, all right, do we want to compete with these banks on a direct-to-consumer basis and honestly just customer acquisition and, and brand at the end of the day? Or do we really want to empower them and touch the thousands and, and thousands and millions of customers that they had already been touching and fix that problem by bringing to them the fintech-like experience that you know we felt the neobanks were, were providing and doing, quite frankly, a, a really good job at, at doing. Yeah, I love the like plattishness of the story, right? Yeah. Like let's 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 wake up in the morning to go help humans become more financially well, more financially healthy, and you pivot into this kind of infrastructure direction that I actually like. I find it hilarious because like the only thing harder from a lot of people's perspective than like working with banks is probably solving financial health, right? Like there's, it's one of the hardest cookies to crack. I don't even know how you measure it in a lot of cases. So it's hilarious that like working with community banks and regional banks is like the easier pivot. It's like the easier company to build in a lot of ways. That's ironic. So, so true. It's it's a really challenging problem. And I think you've seen that number of companies are, are trying to skin that cat in, in a different way. But 
you know, as I was saying, like, how do you solve financial literacy when people do not want to look at their bank account, right? And, and things like that. So totally agree with that. Yeah. I mean, you studied economics in college, this idea that we're all like perfectly rational humans that are going to like log in and understand the spending as if it's not all emotional decision-making, exactly. right? Exactly. So going from this idea of trying to help individual humans, like what was the customer discovery experience like? Like it almost sounds like customer discovery by accident. Like you're trying to get into these banks to get one of them to provision you a bin and do something for you. And you're like, oh shit, like actually they need help more than these folks. Yeah. You, you hit it on the head. It, it was customer discovery by accident. We basically, you know, probably spoke to like 30 or 40 different banks ranging from like the Wells Fargo's of the world who are backing companies like Digit all the way down to like the regional community banks who, who Mantle actually serves today. And, you know, we met this one bank out in Boston called Radius and, you know, they were backing a, a company called Aspiration at the time and, and being the, the back end bank for them, but they were a digital only bank. They had zero engineers in house, right? And, and they were very tied to their core banking system. And they actually had a very specific problem of how do I onboard customers digitally? right? We don't have very many branches. We want to onboard customers digitally. Our conversion rates are really low. And so we sort of looked at that and said, all right, well, there are probably two problems that we need to solve. Number one, how do we enhance the bank's core infrastructure Mm -hmm. without the bank needing to change it today, right? Because if you go through a core migration, it's a multi-year process. It's so expensive. It's an absolute nightmare. It takes, you know, full attention from the bank they just want to avoid it, right? It's just too, too painful today. And so how do we enhance that? And, and we built our API layer, which we call our core wrapper API, which essentially abstracts away functionality from the core and allows these banks to launch digital products really quickly on top of this legacy infrastructure without needing to go through the pain of, of the core migration today. And then the first sort of opportunity that we saw was a product called Account Opening. At the time, and and this was in spring of 2017, less than 20% of banks had online account opening. That was, by the way, a mind-blowing stat for us. And that was just on the consumer side. Less than 1% could open business accounts online. And we were like, that just shouldn't be the case. Like, this is a totally solvable problem. Let's go after that and really use that as our wedge into the market to establish trust, you know, build the brand, get traction, and and then hopefully be able to really help these banks, not only with account opening, but digital transformation as a whole. I think a lot of people are aware that community bank digital onboarding processes maybe aren't what they could or should be. Yeah. But I think a lot of folks, and before I joined MBKC and like got into the world of community banking, like I didn't get it. I was just like, what are they incompetent? But it's not, at least from my point of view, it's not incompetence. Yeah, it's not. So what, what is it and why? And in that sentence that you said kind of at the beginning, which was they're a digital only bank. And then you said they have no in-house engineers. I mean, that's basically how so many, I mean, that's how community banking works. But I come from like at MBKC, I think we had like 21 or 22 engineers and a real CTO by the time that I left. So I knew that wasn't standard, but I thought there would at least be, you know, something more than just an IT person at a lot of these banks, but that doesn't seem to be true. So what drives all of this and why is it so damn hard? Yeah, totally. Look, I think at the end of the day, a cultural issue, right? The bank is really good at selling banking products, selling loans, giving 
you know, advice to, to their customers, you know, having relationship managers go out in the field and, you know, create the right set of products, whether it's treasury management projects or cash management products, but they're not software companies, right? And, and their DNA is not software companies. And, you know, a lot of that is based on the history and, and the evolution of the industry, where if you actually look back to banking, banking was one of the first industries to revolutionize from a technology perspective, right? They moved to computers, these mainframe servers, because they had this problem of keeping track of all these paper transactions in and out, right? But things sort of just stagnated after that point, And we're still using those same exact systems. And the other problem is that the vendors that really provide these solutions to the bank make it hard for these bankers to really move off of them, but also innovate on top of it, right? They're very closed systems. It's very hard to get access to them. It's not like they have open APIs that you know anyone could connect to. The contracts are quasi-predatorial and, and don't really allow the, the banks to leave at the end of the day. Yeah. And so they're, you know, in many ways trapped. And you know, when you sort of talk to a few CIOs or CTOs, like no one will lose their job going with FIS, right? But that's part of the problem. The problem is they may not lose their job, but they're not going to grow, right? And I think one of the big things that we've been focused on is how do you get banks to compete? What is the mindset you need to have as a community bank to be successful? Well, look, I think number one, you need to change how you think about technology. You need to start thinking about technology as an investment and not as an expense. If you start, if you think about technology as an expense, what are you going to do? You're going to cost cut, right? But if you think about it as investment, I'm going to spend the money. It's going to give you access to growth. It's going to give you a fit operational efficiency to, to grow faster and, and really reduce your costs. So, you know, that that's a really big thing that, that we try to focus on. I also think that like the value of digital is also just changing, right? And, and I kind of like to use the analogy of, of e-commerce and, and retail, I don't think branches, for example, are necessarily going away, right? They're just changing what their purpose is, right? They're yeah. a marketing avenue. They're there to like browse and, and get personalized help. But the digital channels, they're meant for acquisition, right? Those channels are used to really acquire the customers and, and get them in. So I don't necessarily think every single bank needs to have a team of 100, 200, 300, 1,000, whatever engineers. If you look at Chase, they do have that. They spent billions of dollars in technology. And, you know, their, for example, account opening solution, I would say, isn't necessarily better than any of the customers that Mantle has, right? So you don't need to have that investment, but you do need to change your cultural mindset in order to really start thinking about growth because at the end of the day, it's an existential risk, right? If you do not change, there is a very real risk that you may not be around in the future because your lunch will get eaten by the money center banks or the, the neo banks at the end of the day. Yeah, but it is, it's so damn hard to be a leader of a community bank right now, I think because of it's like this complete and utter cognitive dissonance and like disjointment, right? Where like, I'm sitting yeah. here talking to you and everything that you're saying, I agree with totally. I think it is a cultural problem. I think it is absolutely all of that. But then you look at the other side and you're like, they're locked into five, seven, eight year agreements with, you know, it's like, just like you said, like the contract, the contracts are, truly predatory in a way that I think a lot of people in the industry 
don't understand. And then they get caught up in an onboarding process doing yada, yada, yada. And they're like, ah, they're just, they don't know what the fuck they're doing or this or that. And it's just like, no, they're just, they're in a position. They're between a rock and a hard place. Right. And I think like, that's the interesting part about mantle is you're kind of like a building a bridge between the rock and the hard place and like allowing it to actually suss itself out and giving them a sense of creativity. Right. Because I think that's one of the things that I heard the most from bankers over the past few years is just like, they want, they have ideas, right. That's another misconception. I think they have so many ideas, but their core always tells them no. And I think yeah. you guys are starting to tell them yes. Exactly. And we, and we give them that power. And look, I think there are a lot of good examples of banks that are being successful, right? Mm-hmm. And banks that actually are doing this in a right way. And it also varies the spectrum, right? Like obviously a radius is kind of on, you know, the more cutting edge. And obviously they just got bought by Lending Club. We work in a bank called Cross River, who's also a very, very tech forward thinking bank. Yeah. But you're also seeing it with the more traditional banks as well, right? Like we worked with a bank called NBC, Midwest Bank Center, who's based in St. Louis, they're over a hundred year old community bank, right? They worked with Mantle and they took a strategy where they launched a digital only brand called Rising Bank. And that became their best performing branch in a matter of months. They hit their deposit goal in, you know, I I think it was 80 days or or whatever the number was. And they were planning on hitting that same goal in, in a year. Right. We work with a bank called Quantic, who, who I think you've spoken to before in that, that was historically a community bank in, in Queens. They're doing some really awesome stuff. They've basically changed from onboarding the majority of their customers physically to now 95% of their customers are onboarded digitally. They're raising $20 million of deposits in, in a short amount of time. They're improving their conversion rates by 150%. So there are banks that are actually doing it. And and I think what's really important for these other community banks to understand is the art of the possible, right? You do Mm. not have to be held back by your core provider because there are solutions out there that allow you to innovate. And, you know, by the way, like there's also a ton of latent demand just built up digitally, whether or not you have the in-house marketing power that some of these neobanks have. We had a bank called Flushing who basically did zero marketing and 20% of their accounts were open online within the first month, right? So there are all these different examples where we're seeing a lot of really strong success stories where banks have sort of said, all right, I'm not going to be complacent. I'm not going to be beholden to my core provider. I'm going to work with companies that are really on the cutting edge of of transformation. And ultimately, that serves their bottom line and, and helps them grow at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting cuz I remember talking to you before you went on paternity leave. Yeah. And one of the things that stuck with me was that you pointed out that you you and Mantle as a generality have this culture of not being a professional services company. Yeah. Right? Which I think is a very it's a very natural thing with a company like yours or even a company like, you know, I'm working with at Bond, like there's this consultative nature that you feel like you have to take on because of the art of the possible, right? Like if somebody comes to you and they're like, I want to do this thing, right? And I'm holding my hands a very small amount apart. And then I, but you say, oh, maybe you could do this thing. And it's actually 10 times larger. How, how do you like, how do you square that? The non-professional services piece with actually like helping them understand what could be the future? Yeah. And by the way, I think being consultative right, is not mutually exclusive with also being a, a professional service company, right? So the, the tack that Mantle takes is we do not write custom code 
or build custom mm. features for any bank. Gotcha. So if a bank wants a feature, we'll build it if a lot of banks want that, or we think it's the best thing for the product, right? And the reason why that's so important is because it allows us to ship product much more quickly. We're pushing to production multiple times a month, you know, 50 plus times a year, right? It allows us to push features and, and scale much faster than, than a lot of the companies. When you're a professional service company, basically what happens is you write all these custom integrations. Like let's say I work with 50 banks. I've now written 50 different customizations. I want to make an improvement to the product. I have to go back update all 50 of those integrations. That means I'm only making one or two updates a year, right? That's that's stagnation. That's not innovation. That's why the, 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 a lot of the vendors move so slowly, right? And so that's why we made a decision very early on that our infrastructure layer would, one, be core agnostic, meaning we don't build custom integrations for all these cores. It's a core agnostic structure, one unified code base across the entire system. Every bank gets every feature. We do not write a lot of, we do not write any custom code and we build a lot of configuration, which allows them to change business logic and things like that. Now, that's the that's the sort of like software development strategy. On the other hand, we are very consultative, right? Gotcha. We give them many best practices. We guide them on, you know, why do you do document non-document-based verification versus document-based verification? Well, it improves conversion rates. And there's really a, you know, minimal impact on fraud, right? Like, why should you be collecting these fields? What should your minimum and maximum funding amount? So we are highly consultative from a implementation and customer success standpoint, because look, at the end of the day, we want our banks to be successful because that's what's going to make them happy. That's going to, that's what's going to make them sing our praises and, and send us referrals. And, you know, ultimately what's, what's going to help them be successful. That's a really helpful distinction because I think I, so I've like never worked at a BCG or wherever I've just like watched enough bullshit on different YouTube videos and whatever that like I associate those two things together right where it's just like I think of the self-service world as like one side of the binary and then the other side is professional services or something but that makes a lot of sense did you figure that out by sheer logic because it does sound logical or was there like something that happened early on in Mantle's life where you spent a good amount of time building for one specific end of one customer that maybe wasn't redeployable? Like, did you learn that in a painful way or just in a logical way? Yeah. So look, we got a little lucky because before we embarked on building the product with our design partner, we actually spoke to a lot of CTOs at former fintech companies that had done this before. Like we spoke to former CTO of Indera, which Bottomline acquired, and you know a number of other things. And there was one common theme. They all said, the biggest mistake that we've made is we were a professional service company and we wrote custom integrations. Hmm. You can figure out a way to not do that. You will be able to move much faster. You'll have way better margins and you'll be able to you know scale, scale the product at a much quicker pace. So we got lucky in the sense that we did a little bit of research and, and spoke to a lot of people who had went through those more stories before. So that once we started writing code from the beginning, we were like, all right, here is our philosophy. This is what we are going to live and die by. It's going to be hard though, by the way, because by the way, bankers ask for specific things all of the time. It's our job to say, okay, cool. Why are you asking for that? What are you trying to accomplish? What is the outcome that you are trying to achieve? 
Now let's solve for that, right? Is it conversion rates? Is it funding amount? Whatever these things are. And that's what we deliver on. We deliver on outcomes, not features at the end of the day. It makes it makes a lot of sense. I almost think of that as like you guys are building the infrastructure for a house almost kind of a thing is like where my head goes as far as an analogy and like the account opening piece is the front door, right? Even the like example that you used earlier is like, even if you don't advertise the front door, people start coming in through it because it's easier. Right. And then from there, it seems like the consultative approach would lead to more customer discovery that leads to the filling out of the other features, yada, yada, yada. So like, what else have you run into since solving the account opening problem and just talking to bankers? Like how has the product expanded? What does the future hold kind of thing? So we originally started with consumer online account opening. So we were just opening accounts for individuals online. And, you know, through the sales process and and through a lot of conversations, and, and this was probably like a year and a half ago, we started to hear, well, business accounts is a major problem. Like opening a business account is extremely complex. The amount of enhanced due diligence and and sort of compliance and risk that has to happen significantly increases. There's not a lot of data sources available, which makes it hard to automate a lot of this process. And the handoff between the branch and the relationship manager and the online channel just doesn't exist today. So when we started to hear about that, we started to identify, all right, what we really need is not just the consumer online account opening product, we need an omni-channel product that allows our banks to meet their customers wherever they are, whether it's online, in the branch, on the go with a relationship manager, and be able to open any type of account, whether it's an individual account or a business account. So that's kind of where we are today and, and where the product has evolved so far. We also do have you know, a, a lightweight API experience, which allow our banks to provision APIs to, to fintech partners or other strategic partners to open accounts at, at the banks. And look, I, I think really what I think the next goalpost will be is how do we continue to own that front door, right? How do yeah. we continue to allow the bank to open any type of account from anywhere and really just empower not only the online channel, but also the bank employees? Because that's where a lot of the inefficiency is at the end of the day. It's with the internal operations, how bankers work, how BSA works, how relationship managers work. And, you know, in a macro environment that we're in where there is margin compression and, and it's harder to make, you know, top line revenue, how do you make money? Well, you got a lower cost, right? And you have to become more efficient. So a lot of the product has evolved to not only helping banks grow faster, but also helping them grow more efficiently and automating a lot of those manual processes that they've once had. I want to put a pin in that and come back to the marketing piece, especially because I think that's like, if you talk to the average CMO at a community bank, which maybe isn't even an average thing, I don't know what percentage actually have a CMO, but in my experience, they're just like, yeah, we spend this amount on marketing. And it's like, okay, so like, what is that? Like, what's the CAC? What's, you know, a lot of the things that you would normally ask someone that's running a software business that they could just rattle off, you know, and be, they could be 10 drinks deep and still tell you the main, the the KPIs of their company and banks just have no idea. So I want to come back to that, but I'm, I'm still fascinated by why business account opening is so much harder than consumer. Cause I think of business accounts as like, like regulators, I think take less of a focus on business. Like they want to protect the consumer usually more than they want to protect business. And so I would think of it as being something that's easier, but I also know of like what one KYB mid desk is like the only KYB company that I've gotten to know. 
So is, is it just like a matter of that? Is it not enough people building to this specific problem and that's why it's so hard? Or is like there innately like some first principles issues there that make it hard? Yeah. So, so there are a number of things. So from start to finish, right? Like let's just take a consumer account. You probably only need to collect 15, maybe 20 pieces of information on a consumer to open that account. You can do it in two and a half minutes, right? right. And you can validate all of that information using, using data sources. So you can basically automate the entire process. With business accounts, well, one, there's a lot more information you need to collect on the business. You also need to handle what's called beneficial ownership, where you need to identify who the owners are, whether they're owners that own greater than 25% or who the control problem mm, is. Okay. And then you also need to handle risky and prohibited businesses. So if you read the BSA, basically what it says is there's a bucket of businesses that fall into categories that the bank need to deem as high risk. If those are high risk, you need to perform an additional step of verification called enhanced due diligence, where you need to do things like a site inspection, or you need to, like, if it's a marijuana related business, you need to get more detailed information, or if it's a cash intensive business, you need yeah. to see the receipts and, and things like that. So when you start moving into those more risky business types and businesses that have more risky practices, banks have historically stayed away from them because there's obviously more risk associated to it. What we're seeing now is there are more data sources that are able to allow us to validate that's more of that information effectively, like a mid-desk, right? We've never been able to say, all right, you've entered your EIN, your tax identification number. Like the only way I've been able to validate that historically is like literally go to the secretary of state website, pull your articles of incorporation and make sure you exist. That's, That's wild. I'm consuming process right now. We can wow. do that real time. Right. And we can do that within a matter of minutes. So there's a ton of efficiency gains there. And, you know, there's also a lot of additional data sources on, on sort of the enhanced due diligence side really at the end of the day, what that boils down to is like document versus non-document based verification. Anytime you need to collect documents and verify them and, and have a human in the loop system, it's going to take more time and, and it's going to be more onerous at the end of the day. So, you know, I think outlines like a little bit of, of the high level, why the workflow in general is just more complex and ultimately makes business account opening more difficult. Makes a lot of sense. It also begs the question for me about this, like next iteration of what a business is, right? Like just the idea of freelancers, the idea of even like for fintech sake, right? It's not me. It's for, it's a, not a corporate entity. I guess it's an LLC, but it's not me, but like, it, it's just kind of me, right? <laughs> like, so how, and, and should there be like a middle ground there between consumer and business that is this new thing? So we bucketed in, there are three buckets that we think about things. There's consumer, there, there's then like businesses which we consider like stole props and LLCs, like lightweight businesses. And then there are complex commercial accounts, yeah. right? That are like 10 to $50 million revenue businesses that are even more complex because of their ownership structure. I think there is massive opportunity in both that middle segment and the long tail segment. Ultimately, the bigger commercial accounts are more profitable for the bank, but there are way more of that middle segment. And I think one of the things we've seen even through COVID and, and the PPP loans is the community banks have built a ton of goodwill with a lot of these businesses, right? So they've built this goodwill. The majority of the businesses that they've worked with are happy. I think I saw a stat like 61% were actually satisfied with the support that they got from their local community bank. That's a massive opportunity 
for these community banks to gain market share in this segment that has historically been underserved. So that's why we're doubling down on, on the business account opening, because we think that is where these community banks need to focus. And ultimately what that translates to is like, those are the loans that are more profitable for the bank at the end of the day versus consumer loans and, and things like that. So we, we see it as a massive opportunity. And I think you're going to start seeing more and more banks just try to capitalize on that. It makes sense. I mean, it's, it feels like those big businesses are really, like you said, potentially profitable, but also feel like honeypots for money laundering, honeypots for all kinds oh of God. different things. And that, and that's why I struggle with that middle group that you're talking about is just like the dollars are generally small enough, or even if they're like a, you know, YouTube influencer making over a million a year or something like still pretty clear, the cash flows in cash flows out. And like with the proper set of transaction monitoring, I think you could keep risk very low there benefit significantly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think AML and, and sort of ongoing transaction monitoring, you're seeing a ton of innovation in that space as well, whether it's like, you know, linking into Shopify or, you know, getting into QuickBooks or, you know, some of the accounting systems, it just makes all of that easier at the end of the day. And you don't have the problem of, all right, I'm sending you a batch file that someone human needs to review at the beginning of the morning. I think it's giving banks a lot more comfort, which ultimately will be better for the end business because they'll be able to work with more banks. It makes sense. How, how do you guys think about build versus partner? Like this conversation is leading me to like thinking about Middesk and Alloy and a lot of these others. Are you thinking about partnering with them until the point that it just gets to be a, such a core comp that you have to build it? Or how do you guys think about that? Yeah, we look. So I think at the end of the day, what Mantle wants to be is that sort of core integration layer right? That brings in best in class solutions. So you just named two companies, Alloy, amazing from a KYC AML perspective. That's what they're solely focused on. We're not going to do a better job than Alloy building a KYC AML solution. Middesk, they're focused on business onboarding. We're not going to do a better job than them at focusing on business onboarding. Plaid, right? They have instant account verification. They're doing all these things. What we want to do is bring together all of these best-in-class solutions and basically provide the banks with an out-of-the-box solution so that it makes it really easy to not only work with Mantle, but also work with these other things. There are some things that Mantle does, whether it's the application layer, or the core integration, or you know the, the funding piece of it, but we are big partnership believers and we do not like to reinvent the wheel if there are companies that are doing a really good job solving that problem, we way prefer to partner and bring in, bring them in into our ecosystem and, and give these banks leverage to all these awesome companies. That makes sense. It's super valuable, I would think too, because I, again, had enough of these conversations to know that in general, and this is, I mean, a testament to you guys, actually, when I talk to community banks, they know who Mantle is across the board. It, it's continuous, dude. Every single time, maybe there's one or two or something, but every single time I can remember they've known who Mantle was. And when we talk about account opening or whatever, but when it gets into, and they know who Plaid is, and then, you know, you get into the hummingbirds, the alloys and like alloy. Now that they raise that round, they're starting to become aware, yeah. but a lot of times they don't know who to go to next. Right. So I think that's super, super valuable. And it also kind of takes me back to the the marketing piece a little bit was just not quite knowing what's going on behind the curtain. Yeah. 
tell me about that? Because I'm curious, especially about like, are they spending ad dollars differently? Are they spending technology infrastructure dollars differently for things like what we were talking about with Alloy, et cetera, to be able to actually get people through the funnel? Like what is your kind of marketing analytic feedback drive inside of a bank? Yeah, definitely. So I think there is a fallacy that is out there that digital customers are not profitable, right? Or, or they're less valuable. That's just actually not true. Like many bankers believe customers you acquire online are not as profitable as, as customers you bring into the branch. That is actually not true. And, and we see that on our platform. I think the average checking account opened on Mantle has about a $5,000 initial balance, right? So pretty, pretty chunky. So ultimately, we have to do a lot of guiding and helping the bank frame how they think about a mantle versus, well, what, what's, what's the best sort of comparable? A branch, right? So when you're making a decision, do I build a branch on the corner of you know, 76 and Broadway? Or do I build a branch, which is an online branch that costs maybe the same as this physical branch, but gives me access to the entire country? Well, what's a better move, right? And, and what will give you more leverage and, and what's more profitable? Yeah. So we really try to help these banks orient them towards like, think about us as your best performing branch across the entire system. We also will empower your physical branches with software, but like they're complementary at the end of the day. And a digital branch gives you infinite scale. And then it gets into, all right, like does the bank have in-house marketing talent? If they do, great. If they don't, there's a bunch of consultants that we can put them in touch with that help them make those decisions and answer all the questions you mentioned, like, you know, what is my CAC and, you know, what social channels and, and other channels are, are leading to the highest conversions. We provide them with that data in order to make data-driven decisions, right? So the banks that are really using Mantle to the highest degree, they're taking the data that we're providing them and they're saying, all right, we just ran you know, ABC campaign, well, which ones led to the highest conversion rates? Which ones led to the most fraud? Well, maybe A did. Now let's reproportion our, our dollars from C into A. And that's how you start to get hyper, hyper, hyper efficient from a marketing standpoint. It's so funny that like everything you just described was like, what, 2014 in the Valley? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like exactly. we're just helping them catch up. Yeah, I know. And that's the, that's the wild part about it. You know, it's like the level of... I'm just shaking my head over here based on the, like, we help them do the cost benefit analysis of a branch physically, like 76 yeah. and Broadway hiring the real estate, even if you're renting, hiring the humans, like stocking the yeah. coffee and the fucking cookies and then versus the actual redeployability and like test oriented, like data driven nature of just a online front door. You would think it's a no brainer, but what? Yeah. I mean, you start to see how you start to see how the stereotypical bank thing gets developed, right? Like when you start explaining something like that, cause there's this 80, 20 rule, it seems like of bankers. And I think 80, 20 is probably wrong, but the concept I think remains the same. We're like, it's just confusing as hell to me that not everyone is thinking this way at this point. It's freaking 2021. There's COVID like who's even opening branches. It confuses the hell out of me when people tell me that they're opening branches. I am apparently on my soapbox now and very passionate <laughs> about this confusion. Well, you're not wrong. You're, you're not wrong. It's very strange, man. It's very strange. Just insane. Okay. So moving on from me jumping off my soapbox, I'm, I'm curious about 
because you have access to so much of this data, right? It seems like you have a really unique lens on business consumer and you're helping the bank have a similar lens that is maybe less sampling oriented. You know, maybe they have a, they know the average balance for their checking accounts. But after that, in my experience, it's usually kind of like whatever that happened six months ago is what they're most aware of. And I think a lot about the world of kind of reg tech and supervisory technology and just like that whole world. Do you think that there's a future where Mantle exposes something or even builds a product that is specifically for regulators to be able to have better vision or I don't know what it is actually, but do you think that's a world you kind of venture into eventually? Yeah, I I kind of think of it in two ways, right? Like one, we have the benefit of seeing customers opening accounts across the country at different banks, and we can potentially utilize that information, obviously, in an anonymized way to benefit the, the customers coming in other banks, right? We saw a customer at Bank A, they came in, we verified they were good from a KYC perspective. Their token says that they're good. And now we know that. And when they come in on bank B, like we can say, all right, well, we know they've been KYC by another bank. Maybe there's, you know, less probability that 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 bank is fraudulent, right? And Hmm. we can use the data, obviously, again, in an anonymized way across all of our customers to drive these insights um, to our banks to, to make better decisions. On the regulator front, you know, it's actually really interesting. The feedback that we've gotten from regulators once they sit down with our banks and do the once every few month audit and, and go through various accounts, dude, it's it's amazing for them. Like they finally have a digital record of exactly what happened when. They can see that you entered your first name, your last name, your email at this exact second. Here's when you entered it. Here's the page that you entered it. They can see the actions the bank employee took. It's a regulator's dream, right? Yeah. Because they get such a deep level of insight on the audit log that essentially we are creating for them. And it makes their life so much easier, which obviously makes our bank's lives so much easier because that's always a, a pretty tricky process. So we do think about you know trying to build tools within the product that help make audits and, and you know things like that easier when our banks have to deal with regulators, for sure. I think it's wild to think about a future where policy might dictate something like this be required? Well, I think policy dictates a lot, right? Like at the end of the day, like the BSA dictates exactly how accounts should be opened and what KYC should be and, you know, how to run enhanced due diligence and and all of these things. I think the the challenge and, and the needle that needs to be thread is how do we encourage innovation Right, mm-hmm. while still being safe and still mitigating money laundering and wit fraud and, and all of those different things. And I don't necessarily think we've fully figured that out yet, but I, I, you know, I'm hoping that that's where people are moving because, like, at the end of the day, innovation is really important, right? And encouraging fintechs to work with banks at a high level is really important and getting these regulators to buy into that is really important, whether it's the OCC or, you know, the FDIC or or the Fed, like we want to promote all of this stuff. But, you know, we got to find the right set of guardrails that that need to happen. And, you know, we can't put too many blockers up because it could go the other way, right? It could actually benefit the incumbents who have a lot of this infrastructure put in place, Mm. really hurt the new guys who have to go through all these hoops. 
Mantle had to go through SOC 1, SOC 2 audits. We, you know, we do pen tests on a regular basis. That Those are all things that are expensive, right? Yeah. And require us to have fully dedicated people in-house focusing on those things. Not every, not every startup, you know, especially if you don't have seed capital, can do that. So, you know, I think we have to be careful with moving too far in one direction that ultimately benefits the incumbents, which are, at the end of the day, the people we're trying to challenge from an innovation standpoint. That is a damn good point, my friend. I had not really thought about that. That makes a lot of sense. So a couple of the last last things here, I know we're kind of coming up on time and I wasn't paying attention because I like talking to you. So the last, like before the two final questions yeah. is what is Mantle's why slash like rallying cry inside of the company? You know, cause I think about like, I think about a lot of FinTech infrastructure companies, especially the ones that are supporting community banks. It, it seems like you'd have to, find the right type of person to join a company like that and have a rallying cry that really makes people work hard enough to make a startup a success. Like shit's just hard. Yeah. So how have you thought about that? Like, how do you make it matter to humans? hundred percent. I think, I think it's two things at the end of the day. One, we are helping level the playing field for a segment of the banking industry that plays a really important role in, in society and economy. Right. So we're really helping level the playing field against the, the money center banks and, and also the, the new fintechs. And, and that's really important. I think secondarily, we're actually changing the financial ecosystem as a whole, right? We're touching so many different banks and we're touching all this legacy infrastructure that we are actually well positioned to change financial technology at a much more macro scale than if we were necessarily building a direct-to-consumer brand. And we're doing it behind the scenes. And I think that's what gets people really excited because, you know, it may not be the flashiest thing in the world, but there is real change happening and people are able to really impact institutions and our ecosystem as a whole through the technology that we built. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I just think about like the, you know, my mom owns a, a yoga studio in Kansas City and like the experience she goes through to just like, go to the bank, deposit yeah. checks, all of this shit. And I'm just like, mom, like there's it other, <laughs> it doesn't have to be this way. Exactly. So I can understand how you, how with some basic storytelling, you could get to how this really matters to a lot of different people. And like, for God's sakes, community banks are the backbone of America in so many ways, right? Like small businesses, but who's banking the small businesses and protecting their money and everything else. It's yeah. at least in my experience, not Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo is never going to sponsor this podcast, by the way. I just talk so much shit. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So that uh, was a great lead into like my two final questions. One is what can listeners do to help you and Mantle? And two is if one of those things maybe is hiring or whatever, where can, where can folks find that information and find more about you? Yeah, well, definitely number one, and you kind of hit it, but we are looking for awesome people who are looking to solve hard problems and you know, work together and can build something really big and, and life changing. So, if anyone's looking for a job, we're hiring literally across every department right now, whether it's product or engineering or sales or, or customer success, there is a place for you. So, I, I would say that's number one. And you can find us either on LinkedIn, you can find us on, on Twitter or our website, which is www.mantle.com. My email is Nathaniel at mantle.com. Always feel free to, to reach out, happy to, to have a chat. and you know, would love to discuss anything that people are interested in. 
Thanks for joining for another episode of For Fintech's Sake. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Nathaniel Harley, CEO at Mantle. I've included pertinent links to find Nathaniel and learn more about Mantle in the show notes. As I said before, this episode was brought to you by vSum. Go to v-sum.com to learn more and apply to be part of the next event. Now, for the podcast host stuff, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. And I'll talk to y'all next week.